0: This is Brian Geister and I want to express my gratitude for you tuning in to Holocaust Survivor Next Generation podcast. My podcast series capturing some of the most enduring stories in history around adversity, perseverance, hard work, entrepreneurship, and generosity that truly have never been shared from the first generation or maybe better said the second generation of Holocaust survivors around the world. As a third generation family member whose grandparents were both Holocaust survivors, from poland and austria the values that were passed down to me from my father around work ethic integrity supporting the jewish community and overcoming all odds have shaped the way that i see the world and hopefully my opportunity to make a positive impact
1: my daddy always say money comes and goes your reputation stays forever so for me it was always making the right decisions uh, being honorable being forthright yeah, just doing the right thing,
0: Kenny. It's a, an honor and privilege to have you on the podcast today. Would you would you sh- kindly share a little bit about your family's background prior to the war and about their experience in coming to the U.S.?
1: Uh, yes. So prior to the war, uh, my both my parents were born and raised in Poland. Both of them in the south. East part of Poland, my father closer to the uh, the Russian border and uh, well, Ukraine and, uh, and my mother uh, outside of Lublin, two different experiences. My father came from a very, you know, what you would what you would call a shtetl, a very small town. His father uh, was a butcher and they sold meat and he brought it to all the people in the neighboring towns and villages and sold they were Orthodox. Um, he, my father, came from uh, like eight brothers and sisters. Him being I believe the second oldest of the family, and uh, and so he grew up, you know, small neighborhood school, um, experienced anti Semitism as, as a as a young child, just because you know you're in the country and you know you a different different set of Values in a sense or beliefs, Um, but, you know, that was just part of life. That's how that was. How life was Uh, very close, large family, you know, grandparents, uh, cousins, everybody lived in and around the area that he was from. He was from a small town called Kulno, which is about 45 to an hour outside of Zeshef, which is kind of an international airport there. Um, when I go back and visit the, uh, the town, um, that's actually where I go and then there's an easy access point for me. And his, you know cousins were from Lezhinsk, which is maybe car ride 15 minutes. you know, obviously walking, obviously quite a bit longer. but there's a point where I will make the connection between that. My mother came from a, a larger uh, small city maybe um, called Taasha Lebelski. Again, outside of Lublin, classic European city, big town square, you know, shops and all the area. They live in what they call the Jewish ghetto. It was an area set aside for just the Jewish families, which is where the synagogue, which has been there for, you know, decades, if not a century, at the time. And and that's where she grew up in that environment. Again, cousins and grandparents and all of the above and and you know, life went on. Again, both both in different circumstances experiencing anti Semitism, but that was just part of life. That was just part of that world at that time. As the war started to as as well, two ways of looking at it from my father's perspective, there was noise. Again, being in a small town, you didn't have internet. You didn't have, you didn't have the kind of, uh, information highway that we all obviously are very spoiled and, and, and dependent upon today. So everything that you would hear about something like that would generally be word of mouth or something. And you, you don't know if it's, if it's, uh, if it's fact or fiction or just, you know, manufactured. But when there's then, when all of a sudden, obviously the, the Germans, uh, invaded Poland in 1939 you know they're going into various cities and towns and mostly into Jewish areas and and obviously creating the disruption initially and eventually the uh, building the camps and obviously doing the you know the massive extermination genocide of the Jewish population so at, prior to that as they're going to different towns my father's cousins were in Lejensk which is again maybe, 15 minute drive, maybe an hour walking. And they have, they contacted my father and they said, You need to leave. You need to leave now um, because the Germans are here. They're coming and they're already in our area and they're coming. Um, There's an interesting story of, of what I've learned actually recently of how did the Germans wind up in the small town for my fa- where my father was born and raised of Kulno. And uh, it's very interesting actually. And how I learned about that was on a recent trip, uh, which I will get to in a minute. So he then, when he was told, he tried to convince his father, who again, have lived there their whole lives, dad we have to go we have to leave we have to leave now and his father said no this is where we're from it's not going to be that bad we'll survive this thing i don't think it's as bad as you're saying and my father in the middle of the night tried to convince his older sister and others and they said no we're staying with you know dad and the mother and and my father took it upon himself to leave And when he left, it was the guilt he lived with for the rest of his life because of the last time he saw his family. And so, you know, part of it was, you know, should I have stayed or part of it, should I have survived and continued with the legacy of the family? And it was interesting dynamic that, again, many survivors who I've obviously been around my entire life, having no... uh, uh, grandparents or cousins or anybody I mean, other than maybe some, you know, third or fourth distant cousins who were able to, a couple were able to escape. My family were the friends of, of survivors. That was my aunts, my uncle. That was my family. It was just a different environment because when you have no family, I mean, the only family, immediate family I had was my two parents and my sister. That was it. Growing up, you know, life in uh, L.A. was uh, quite a bit different um, than obviously what they experienced. But what was interesting, what happened with uh, what I learned. So my father left. He then escaped, and his whole experience was uh, he got captured by the Nazis. Uh, they uh, a couple of soldiers. They put him in a, a farmhouse, locked him with some other people. You know, they they that night they were drinking. He was able to escape. He then, you know, crossed the river and he then got captured and then he got by the, the Russians. And then he went out, then he was sent off to a work camp in Siberia. And so his experience was being in work camps, um, you know, which was he said was worse than you can imagine. I mean, you're starving, you're freezing, I mean, there's no support, I mean, other than what you're doing. And then eventually, and being transported on trains, he was on a train uh, that was on its way to St. Petersburg that was uh, bombed. He was the only thing that part of the train that wasn't. And so the experiences were devastating, and obviously uh, scarred for the rest of your life is what you live with. But you survived. He ultimately made his after the war. He's able to get uh, sponsorship to the distant cousin in New York. But before that, he wound up at a displacements person's camp in Italy, which is where he met my mother. And that's where they met. And, you know, they got married there. And then, and then uh, they both, uh, in different times, and he had to get sponsored to go to uh, New York. And then uh, months later, my mother was able to get her papers to come over. And she was actually pregnant at the time. And, uh, and that was my sister was born actually in New York, just literally right after she came over. Um, but the story is my father had this guilt, as I kind of said at the outset, justifiable. I mean, no question. How do you how do you how do you leave your family? How do you, you know you see what's going on? You hear what's going on. You try and convince them to go. They, you know they're wrong. And then you you make quite honestly the right decision because you survive and you're able to continue on with with the family, the legacy, and then start a new family and obviously create generations thereafter. Um, but so my father went back in, I'm gonna say somewhere around the 70s. No, actually maybe early 80s. He went back to Paul to find out what happened. He had to find out again that guilt was just, he couldn't, it was just what he had. What actually happened, he tried to reach out. In 1981, interesting. Right, and, and, and that's why the timing of am off on. There was a world gathering of Holocaust survivors in, in Israel. We all went, my father, my mother, and uh, my wife at the time, and who still is my wife. <laughs> uh, uh, my well, wife and Cheryl uh, we were just married is what I was trying to allude to. And and I we went to Jerusalem. And this is when Menachem Begin was the prime minister in this world gathering. It was the first time we're it was very interesting to hear these stories, the first time where people were able to actually discuss the Holocaust, discuss, because they were able to relate to one another. It was, it was heartfelt to see people break down and laugh and, 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 and bond and all the emotions that you can imagine, because they're all the same, you know, different country, different situation. But the horrific stories are very, very similar. And that inspired my dad. I mean, I remember there was one point in time when this is obviously 1981 and computers weren't then what they are today. I don't forget there was a computer bank to see if you can locate lost relatives. So people were lined up to see maybe... There's somebody out there they can reconnect, and and I'll never forget this. My wife always reminds me of this, you know, and she's with him and we're with him, and he's you know he's he's, he's enthusiastic, excited. He's, they're going to the computer, and going this town, this town, this this Pressburg, Pressburger, you know, all the various names, and nothing came up, and you can see just how disappointed again, you know, that nothing came up, whereas other people actually did find, again. Yeah. The, the search then versus the search now is obviously different. So from that point on, he made a commitment to go back to Poland and actually find out what happened. And then from that point on, when he found out, which is, uh, which is the story that I now know is, um, when there were, when the, when the uh, Nazis were in Poland and they were fighting the Russians, a couple Russians escaped the Nazi, uh, captivity and they wander are you know they're hungry they're tired and they're disheveled and and they wound up coming into kulno and they asked them if you can you know help us and the people there you know obviously fed them and helped them and so on and so forth well the nazi patrols were running out looking for these these escaped russians there, you know a few of them not just but when they realized that they went to Kulno, they said, okay, we're going to dress up as Russian, you know, scafies, and we'll come in there and say, did you see our comrades? And they came in, they, they said, oh yeah, you know, so-and-so. When they realized they were there, then the Nazis came in to Poland to, to Kulno, rounded up the Jews and anybody who supported these, these captives, and, and they marched them out to the uh, middle of the forest. You know, you've seen this on many uh, movies, Uh, dug a masquerade, shot him, threw him in and covered it up. And that was the end of it. And and that's what happened to my father's family. Um, So um, he went back every year for decades, first to build a monument, which I was involved with him in that. And I went back the first time when he was building it. And then he, uh, and he built it. And this is when uh, Poland was com- under communist rule. And so it was not easy, you know, you're an architect, you're a builder. I mean, not easy. And you're a Jew from, uh, you know, from, you know, LA, I mean, coordinating all that. But he did, you know, survivors are very committed and very focused. And, you know, Noah is just a starting point. And um, so he got it done, he built his monument. Uh, And with the help of a friend he befriended when he went back the first time to Poland, a a local uh, gentleman who's half Jewish who had a pastry and ice cream store, and he met through some uh, friends who were in Poland as well when he went back the first time. And it was at I believe it at the Marriott in Warsaw, and they befriended each other. They were I think like 19 years difference. He was younger than my father. But they became like brothers, and this guy wound up being, you know, one of the most successful entrepreneurs in Poland. He still is. He's, uh, it's called uh, Grecan G R Y C A N, which is an ice cream store. It's it's equivalent cool to Hagen does here. I mean, very. But this guy, for years, their 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 relationship was just I'm like brothers. And every year, my father, as he got older and he went back, he would want to go back and, and go to Poland to see the neighbors and visit his friend. As he got older, I'd try to you know, tell him, yeah, you're getting older. It's not safe. And, you know, I'll go with you. And as my father got older, he got tighter with his, with his, with his money. And I, so I always make a job. All right, dad, if you're going, you got to hire charter a private plane. You got to bring a guys I'm not going to do that. I said, well, then I guess he can't go because you're getting too old. Right. And I didn't realize the real he, he went, I didn't realize the relationship until after my father passed away with this gentleman, the relationship was so powerful that we now have that relationship where um, when we go there and, um, and visit the, uh, the monument, which I've recently had it renovated um, after 30 plus years uh, sitting out in the middle of the forest, they drop everything. The family drops everything, pick us up. I mean I mean these are major successful, busy people where we're, we're VIPs. And uh, that bond is so powerful that we now continue with that bond. My mother's side was interesting. So her situation was when you know one day all of a sudden you know they're they're there and all of a sudden all of a sudden they hear this noise. It's a bunch of planes and the Nazis came and just firebombed the entire town, mainly focusing on the Jewish ghetto and where the synagogue was. And basically in the middle in the middle of the day. Uh, they're just running for the people. Just were running because just firebombs all over the place, and so they couldn't. You know, they they, they didn't know how to find. They ultimately were able to reunite with her, my mother's parents, and her brother. Everybody was destroyed and killed, and murdered, and they went east. They were able to kind of navigate through the mountains all the way to Uzbekistan. You know, way, way east. You know, just meander. But unfortunately, on the way. Both my mother's parents, uh, who would have been my grandparents, passed along the, that that horrific journey. Uh, they contacted typhus and they both passed away. And my mother, at 11 years old, was kind of playing like on around um, with her with her older brother who who got who who was mentally affected by what happened. So she really became like the adult in the room and had to protect him and so. She uh, was able to continue on and do what you had to do to survive as a child, right? But really as a child who never had a childhood, you know, so you had to be an adult immediately and fight and live and scrape and survive. She then went back uh, to Poland to see if anybody was there after the war. And she had to leave immediately because there were people the the locals in, in in her area and in poland were actually hunting for jews because they didn't want to return because they were know, when they left they took their property, their 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 farmland their homes they took everything. they didn't want them back uh, and so uh so she realized that she was able to then uh, emigrate to the uh, Italy and, and being a, a displaced persons camp again, where my parents met and, and they got married and, and the life they created in the, the United States was very special. It was two of them. Uh, my father's trade was a kosher butcher. That's what he knew. Um, and they wound up uh, in, in New York, Brooklyn, New York, where I was born. And that was kind of what the, how they ended up in the United States.
0: It's interesting because as I had the privilege of, of visiting with people and having them share their stories with me, you know, I just didn't realize the significant amount of anti-Semitism after the war. It felt as though the war was still going on in Europe. How did how did your family end up in L.A. after your parents came to Brooklyn?
1: So my father, you know, was a uh, he worked you know delivering meat right to support his family and uh eventually my father was a very ambitious guy very smart guy very driven guy he was able to you know see he had a gift of of being not just proactive but actually seeing ahead ahead of most people he can he can see us he can be talking to somebody about something and he can already see where this is going or someone was explaining something and he could see like two, three, five, ten years out. I mean, he just had that gift. So he was always able to, you know, anticipate and anticipate pretty much right on the money. Um, so he realized that you know, growing up in uh, in Brooklyn, everyone's getting sick, and it was tough life. That he had an aunt in New Mexico, and she offered to have him come out to New Mexico and run. She had a small little motel, and so. So she, it was a distant So she then had everybody come over to New Mexico, but she really uh, brought him over to use him because she knew she couldn't have to pay him more, pay him a lot. He was a hard worker and she could, you know, take advantage of the situation. My father, they hated it there, but it was, you know, there was an interesting story. So one day they uh, she was married to a non-Jew, um, who was kind of a, who was an alcoholic. And so it was kind of a, a weird relationship. So one day they were out, you know, for the day, uh, and they said to my father, just run it. And my father, you know, obviously he spoke broken English and he's in, New, you know, Albuquerque, New Mexico, you know, kind of an interesting dynamic, but knowing my father, you know, he always tried to, you know, to do well. Right. So what happens, they came, you know, and and the motel was struggling. They were always asking for X amount of dollars and people would shop. So when they came back, the whole place was full. I go, what happened? They said, well, you know, the guy offered, you paid, the guy only had $10 and the room was 12. I sold it for 10. And guess what? Now you have a full room versus an empty room. Because an empty room. You have zero, you know, and that's how he explained. They got angry because they, 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 what did you do? You, 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 you know what you're doing. And he was doing. Good. You know, he was trying to he's generating revenue because this thing was flailing. And he realized that there was no no future there. And so then they decided to move on to uh, uh Los Angeles. And my father uh saved up some money and he said, you know, I, I want to go to LA. I have better weather, better, more opportunity. <laughs> And I can open up eventually, uh, work and open up a kosher butcher store. And he did, he found a partner and he wound up in uh, Los Angeles in the Baldwin Hills area in Crenshaw and he had a, another Holocaust survivor partner. Cause there's a, there's a tight community. I mean, it wasn't a large community, but it was a tight community. Every time you go to an area as a survivor, you would find out where the survivor clubs were and like, wait. Like, you know, which would be natural. You know, where they, where they uh, gather, where they'd socialize. Then one person would know this person, this person would know that person. And then, and then you know, obviously almost like, kind of like uh, blind dating, but with a with a purpose. Anyway, so they, so they went up to Los Angeles. They had a, my father had a great life. He was successful. He saved up a bunch of money in Los Angeles. And then one day to see he, a friend of his, uh, who was a tailor, who was also a survivor, started building uh apartments and uh so they kind of my father uh saved a bunch of money and uh decided to build an apartment building a small one like uh i think seven units why it's an odd number is because uh one of the units would be where we would live you know my sister but you know the family uh, and that was in the pico robertson area which is uh, you know it, Jewish dominated area uh, then and as it is today. So he hired a contractor and you know, life savings and during that period of time, the contractor goes broke. So here's my dad, you know, you know, partially built and he's life saving. This is, I mean, this is, we realized I have two choices. I can either take a hit and figure it out or complete it. So he did, he completed the project successfully and he realized he really enjoyed being a builder. And so after he built that, he then partnered up with this gentleman by the name of Harry Kurtzfeld. Um and they started building a, they started raising money from other survivors or relationships. Um, you know, with little money. And then they would then start to build apartment partner projects in Los Angeles. Then it was a kind of it was easy to get financing was whole a to, different ballgame. Um there's still such a record, non I mean it was you know conduit, non conduit I mean the whole simple going to the bank, going to a savings loan and just getting a normal loan and building a project. And it was, and zoning wasn't complicated and the building department wasn't complicated. You know, life was, it was fairly simple. And uh, so they started building uh, projects and, and then they morphed into convalescent hospitals and retirement homes. and They did well, they did really well.
0: What year does the story of the first building take place in?
1: So, the, so the build, when he built that building, I must have been around. I was in still in grammar school, so I had to be around ten ish. So, right, I'm sixty six. So, like fifty six years ago plus. So that was about then, and then, uh, and then they built the you know for decades i mean you know decades they were building projects
0: as you think about growing up around so many other holocaust survivors in la what were the values that were passed down to you by this group along with your parents that that you feel really impacted who you are and how you get back today
1: yeah i mean that's a very interesting question and a very good question so going back to what i stated earlier in 1981 there was this gathering in jerusalem prior to that there was not a lot of conversation about the Holocaust, other than the fact is you knew they went through what they went through, but they wouldn't share the severity of those experiences because you wouldn't, as my mother would say even today, no one could believe what we went through. You, I mean, no matter what, you, you just couldn't believe that, that people can treat people and, and the world was that way. Yeah, you you knew they had. You listen, uh, a, a great example that I'll kind of you know digress, but I think it's a funny when I'm when I'm dating my wife and I say, okay, it's time to meet my parents. So we're gonna go Shabbat dinner. We're gonna meet my parents. This is my wife, you know, Cheryl. She meets them. We had a great you know great evening, and then we walk out the door. We're about to go in the car, and first thing she said to me, she says, "You never told me your parents had accents." And I looked at her. They do. <laughs> So that was my life. I mean, I didn't hear accents. I mean, that was the world I lived in. The values. My father. My charitable values. A hundred percent come from my father. When he had little, he still gave. He realized that I made it. I have to give back. I if I have if I have a dollar, I have to give a percentage of that back because. I'm fortunate to be where I'm at. I'm fortunate to be here. I'm fortunate to. So those values, I would say, specifically came through my father. In, uh, and obviously i have become very, as you know, very charitable, very philanthropic, very active. It wasn't just about giving money. It was also being active and giving money, being on the temple board, being on this board, just just being an active person. And so those are the values I had. But growing up, I mean, like I said, they didn't really talk about the experiences until really after 81, more so. And then it became a focus because now it was almost like there's a lot of us out there and we could, and we have to share it and we have to be part of that. And so my father was raised Orthodox. So there was a push and pull between my father and my mother my mother, although she was raised, you know, it, it, there was no like divisions of Judaism in the old country. I mean, it's just, it just, just. How are you chabad or not? It wasn't like Reform, Conservative, or Orthodox. It's like you're Jewish or or really Jewish, you know, and see it. um So we had Shabbat dinners every Friday night. That was that was big. Uh, they were they were not. My father wanted me show more shabbos My mother kind of wasn't. Um, so was sort of like I call us like sort of like a hybrid. We are hybrid Jews. My father went to temple every Saturday. I went to temple with him. So I was raised in a, I was bar mitzvah the North temple in an Orthodox temple in Beverly Hills in Los Angeles. And um, so those values were kind of over time. I mean, part of it was discussions and part of it was just by example. And I think example is more powerful than discussion. Yeah.
0: So, as you know, I live in Washington, DC, or here in Los Angeles. I I you know, happen to have the privilege to be on the Holocaust tribute dinner every year. They do this major dinner in D C and they really replicated this around the United States. I mean the world. Your family was one of the founding families of the Holocaust Museum. Can right. you can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah.
1: So my father, um... Uh, again, with a lot of with the people locally here when uh, that, was, that was going on. He, for him, he wanted to make a, a point. And the Holocaust Museum, you couldn't have picked a better way of continuing with the unfortunate memory, but continuing with that, 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 that passion. I mean, here you have a museum that's built on the Washington Mall. It's not going anywhere. This is something that's here forever, um, and so to be part of the founding uh, parties or members of that was very, uh, very inspirational and very powerful, and, and it was exciting. Uh, and so, so they were very. I, mean, I remember yeah. I think the uh, uh, when it was completed, and, and I think they were speaking. It was raining that day. It was. just, which is so apropos you know, for, for what it is at the end of the day. But and then because of that, um, I've become very involved with the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. Um, my wife and I were honored um, a few years ago. We, we got awarded award recently in DC um, and we're still very actively involved and continue to be actively involved um, on, on, the, on, on that. And I'm also involved because of my background. I was on the board of yad vashem you know yeah you know similar but different you know a jewish museum versus the u.s holocaust museum is a, is a museum in the united states and um it was very powerful very powerful of of that whole uh experience and again it, it, everything was by example and uh everything i learned was through example and through commitment. Um, and because of that, my wife, who was, I, I, I use the term, you know, her family was multi-generation, you know, United States. I always refer to her family as delicatessen Jews, you know, <laughs> and um, she became very active and very involved uh, and very passionate. Um, My kids, um, we've gone on UJ missions, you know, where we went to you know, parts of uh, Lithuania and Russia. and saw poor families that need this. And they saw the assistance where they basically took their bar, bar at the time bar bar mitzvah money. They wanted and made a donation because, you know, because they just felt so passionate about it. So again, you, you lead by example, you, 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 you show what you need to do and generationally it, it it should continue on. And what makes me so happy is to see how involved my family and my kids or my youngest son right now goes to the, the, the real estate, the breakfasts and and networks and the relationships. And it's great to see all that. I mean, these are very important things that unfortunately, um, you know, we're started from, but the continuation of it is so inspiring.
0: We touched a bit on how your father came and built a successful real estate business, and you've taken that and and really taken it to another level. Did you always know you were going to go into real estate? Tell me a little bit about your professional career, path.
1: When I was growing growing up, I mean, I worked again um, on job sites when I was like. You know, ten, eleven. I mean, I would I would, you know, as they're building Of course, it's probably child labor. I could have hired a lawyer and sued my dad, but obviously I'm kidding. Um, But I would be digging ditches or tearing, doing demolition, and doing all these types of things and working with the subs as a little pipsqueak. But, you know, again, his whole thing was I was learning. I was learning all about it from literally the ground up. Um, So I, I, I really understood um, you know, when he got involved, I got involved. And what the beauty of it was when I was, as I got older and my father would be in very difficult meetings, you know, whether he had to terminate somebody or deal with a contractor. I'd be the little guy in the room listening and watching and observing. And so when I became a principal, it was pretty simple. I mean, in the sense that I re- I've seen every action you can imagine before I even had to deal with it. So for me to step into a position of being a principal, a general partner, or a managing member was not that difficult. It was just very, it was, it was a very smooth transition. The beauty that I had when I was younger, I always looked young. And so by looking young, no one took me seriously. And so I was able to take advantage of that where nah, that could be real serious well yeah you're right i'm not gonna be serious but of course i have to terminate you <laughs> you know so, like <laughs> what yeah and so it was just an interesting dynamic growing up in that environment um but then uh, i went to law school and i was going to uh, be a lawyer and I actually I was really contemplating do i want to do that and my dad said, why don't you come in and and just you know you know, maybe work here and then also maybe you can become a partner. And there was only two partners, my father and this gentleman, Harry Kurtzville, who also had a son, but he was not interested in, 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 in being involved. And I said, I said, okay, if my father, you know, the interesting thing is my father and I are very similar personalities. So the question is, can two type A kind of aggressive, ambitious guys kind of, Work together, and that was always that's always been a challenge. Uh, always will, it can be a challenge. Well, my dad always says, You know, there's sometimes when I'm dealing with you, I gotta bite my lip, and I know I gotta bite it hard. You know, I go, You're kidding, well, look at mine, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so it's just that we had a phenomenal uh relationship. So, what happened is, um I um, I worked, uh, uh, I remember, I'll remember. i never forget this, I worked on a small condo, condominium project, like 12 unit development. And I was like the superintendent. Oh, but I left out. So while I was in law school or college? Law school, I got a contractor's license. So while I was in there, I was able to get contractors at the time the laws were changing in terms of owner builder. So I became the license, my license became the contract, the license for the company, California, and then ultimately branch out into Nevada as well. And um, so I would, um, so again, having a lot of experience in running projects, I would, I would they left me alone. They basically let me kind of like sink and swim, which was interesting. I'll never forget one example I had. There was a project, another kind of project in Beverly Hills, where I didn't really know the uh, the sequence. I knew it, but I, you know, again, yeah, there was different things and, and subcontractors. Because I, I looked young and I and I was and I, I was the guy running the job, they would try to take advantage of me. You know, they always want to get in and get out. That's how they make their money. So one guy says, "Well, you, you, we're ready to go. We got uh, we got the things on us, so now you can pour the lightweight concrete on the flooring, so we can complete." So I schedule the, the lightweight, we're getting, and you know, I'm calling everybody, we're rolling along, and yada, yada. And then one plumber, who actually happened to be a survivor as well, he says, Kenny, let me ask you a question. Did you call for an inspection? I go, what was I supposed to? I go, yeah, you really were. And so here I am, I called the inspector, I said, listen, I basically you know, came clear. I said, you know, I made a mistake. I didn't realize it. But you, you can see under here that these, you know, I explain. The guy looked at me and goes, listen, you're totally screwed up. But I know you're honest and I can see the work. I'm going to pass you. Like, I'm lucky. But the point is, you learn on the fly. And you learn, like, if you make a mistake, you know what? Just fess up and deal with it. And so I had a lot of experience building and I built a lot. And then uh, eventually I wanted to be. So so then I came to ask me to become a partner. I actually had a buy-in. From you know, I where I actually saved up money, bought into the partnership, became a third partner. But then I was really ambitious. I mean, I was, I want to just go nuts. And, uh, and, and I don't forget Harry and my father said, you know, we're okay where we're at, we're happy. You know, if you want to go nuts and, you know, you do your own thing. And so eventually I broke out, I started, uh, developing properties, uh, through L.A., uh, joint venture and institutional partners. Um, and then I became a developer in L.A. and then eventually uh, wound up expanding beyond that through multiple states. And then eventually my father and I were always involved in projects together, but as I expanded out, he got involved in a project in Vegas. He brought me in. We then created a company together and then we kind of built out a bunch of housing projects in Vegas. And so my father and I were always partners on most of the stuff, not everything, um, by choice. I mean, it was just because we had such a special relationship. As a matter of fact, as I got successful, my dad was a real micromanager. And I was, and, and so for me, that was so great. So there are times that I would just say, Dad, you're in the deal. You don't to put anything in it. I just want you to run this manager thing, and he loved it because he loved people. He loved dealing with employees and people. He just that was his biggest. That was when he was the happiest of all, and so we just created a great. We had a phenomenal relationship, and he was a very smart guy. And we had um, I could run, um, and um, so that's how I got involved. And then I just started the building. I got involved in you know we built this property together, this hotel. Uh, the three of us, it was, I remember this early in my career, I actually wanted to build a shopping center here. I remember when I was, I said, I think this underwrites better as a shopping center than a hotel. No, we're going to do a hotel. It's great. For years, it was difficult because it was too, it was just out there. Um, fortunately it became highly successful. Yeah. Neighborhood kind of matured and the property is obviously very, very successful. Um, but, um, anyway, so that's, that's what happened. So partners, I broke out and started doing a bunch of other stuff, but always maintained the relationship with my father in everything that I did, uh, in real estate.
0: So I'm not sure you'd shared this yet in the podcast. What are the names of your parents?
1: Uh, Sydney Presberg and Anna Pressburg.
0: Whether it's building a company today or getting involved in Tikkun and giving back, what advice would you share with others that are listening?
1: I can only share from what I was around. And the most important thing in any business and in life in generally is your credibility and your character. So that was built in early on. My dad always say, money comes and goes, your reputation stays forever. So for me, it was always making the right decisions, decisions. Uh, being honorable, being forthright, and just doing the right thing. So that's the first starting point is your character and your reputation. Um, so once you have that, what happens, people want to be around people who they are, can trust and who are honest. And um, and hopefully you're smart, right? That's a good combination. But you can buy smart, but you can't buy honesty and, and character, right? And so that was a big deal and so my my the advice is kind of how i how my kids were raised you know your reputation is everything your character is everything but whatever you make you have to give back when you're fortunate it's not it's not about greed how, how much do you need how much do you want it's really it's a balance life is a balance you know you have, you have to balance your life between work family charity and personal and private time and And there's no particular order. You know what the order is because week to week, the priorities have to change by responsibilities at what you do. Um, So for me, I've been the most successful the more charitable I've been in that year. It's a weird phenomenon. I, I can't put a thing to it, but the more I, even there are times, you know, in real estate development, you go through peaks and valleys. There are times when you're doing well. And there are times when you're just like, cash poor because you have everything invested in these assets. Right. And, um, but every year you still got to make those commitments because the person who, who needs the, uh, the food delivered to their house, the person who needs the medical care, the person who, who, has, you know, issues with, with the family member that they need help, you know, they don't have that luxury. And so, I mean, you got to figure it out. So it's, it's almost like, you you make those commitments year to year uh, and, and you balance your life. I mean, I, I don't think of anybody containing anything different. It's it's all about balance, all about priorities. I mean, I probably get most excited when I when I get things, you know, whether it's through the Internet or mail or where there's like a, either a film or there is a uh, A mini mission somewhere where I could really reconnect with not just other people but just the area, or whether it's background Judaism or whatever it is, it's exciting to really relive that. When my wife and I travel, we travel extensively. We're fortunate we can. We always go to the local Jewish communities in every, and it's it's amazing. Like you know, my my partner they have a property in Croatia, and we're in Croatia. And we went to uh, Dubrovnik, we went to the local and, and split and we went to the local Jewish thing. There's, no one's there. They all left or they died. I mean, the whole. I mean, the, the synagogue is like maybe it's like, what, 20 families left, you know. But once you walk in there, it's like it's like a relative. I mean, they, they you know, you, you just have that connection and you can support it and feel good about it. So. I don't know. I think it's balanced. I think life is balanced. And, you know, obviously your family is the most important thing. I you mean, know, work, you can figure out, and then, you know, charity is, is, is just part of just, it's just part of your obligation as, as, as a person. I think.
0: It's really been such a pl- pleasure and privilege to learn and hear your story. Thank you for obviously making the time. And I really enjoyed having the opportunity to feature you on the podcast. This is Brian Geister. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. I'll be back next time with another story featuring an incredible philanthropist who's overcome all kinds of adversity and the horrors of the Holocaust, coming to North America and building an incredible company. Thank you so much and hope to see you again soon.